It was this sudden, unexpected openness to the truth of the Eucharist as a, a gateway to understanding God's love and mercy at a, a broader level and not just understanding it, but really experiencing and feeling, yeah, God's outpouring of love and healing power uh, and just how he's really seeking a personal relationship with us. Welcome to the I Am Here podcast, a space to be inspired by stories of men and women who have found in the Eucharist the strength and purpose for their lives. I'm your co-host, Leah Butalid, and I've been gathering stories for the I Am Here campaign. And I'm Father Mario Amore, a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit. And today we welcome Patrick Braga to share his story. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. Um, To get to know you a little more, what's your home parish? I'm at St. Mary's in Royal Oak. And how long have you been part of that community? Oh, I first started going there, I think it was Pentecost of last year. Okay. Yeah, go to daily mass. I was at St. Joseph's Shrine also at the same time. Wonderful. And then, yeah, I made St. Mary my home parish earlier this year. Very good. And tell us a little bit more just about yourself. What kind of work do you do? Yeah, I'm an urban planner and a classical composer. So right now wow. working as an urban planning and housing development consultant trying to figure out how in the world to get into affordable housing development, and then uh, churning out as much liturgical music as uh, as the Holy Spirit <laughs> inspires me. Very good. Do you play an instrument? Yeah, keyboard instruments. So piano, and if somebody helps me out with the organ as well. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And do you, um, do you sing in church or sing in the choir? I do, yeah. I'm a choral tenor. Um, I sing at St. Mary and Old St. Mary as well twice a month, okay. and then wherever there's an opportunity around the Archdiocese. Very cool. Well, welcome. Thank you. It's a very unique combo, urban planning and classical <laughs> music. I love it. Makes life fun. I believe it. And um, I know that music plays a huge part in your story that you've shared with us on I Am Here. So thank you again for um, being willing to share what the Lord has done in your life through his presence in the Eucharist. Um, and you talked a bit about uh, this moment in the midst of COVID. You somewhat unexpectedly found yourself at St. Joseph's Shrine, one of our parishes here in Detroit that you mentioned. Can you tell us what unfolded that led you to finding yourself there? Sure. Oh, it's such a, a wild but amazing story. Um, it's one of, and a great example of how there's really no mistake in God's plan for mm-hmm. us and uh, how he orders our life in really unexpected ways, perhaps, from our human perspective, and it all works out. So when I was an undergrad, one of my majors was music, Um, And in music history class, I had the blessing of having a professor who was really into medieval music. So she actually taught us how to read Gregorian chant. And as a composer in undergrad, I learned about all these medieval and Renaissance techniques of using Gregorian chant as a base for more complex compositions. So you could take a chant, apply, say, a rhythmic pattern to it that repeats, um, and then elaborate the other voices of a choir around it. Um, So... In undergrad, I actually discovered the website of the Institute Christ the King because they post the Gregorian chant of the day for pretty much every Sunday and special feast days on there. And every once in a while, say if I was on a choir tour in undergrad, I would pull up their website, um, get the Gregorian chant, start composing on the bus, something like that. So when I moved to Detroit, I uh, came here to work for the Detroit Housing Commission. And one of their offices is right across the street from St. Joseph's Shrine. So when I saw that the church was run by Institute Christ the King. I thought, oh, these are the guys that have good music. Like, let me go check them out. Um, and it, and that, that summer, they were ha- this was summer 2020, oh, 2020. Um, they were having choral masses uh, sung by the Cantatio group. 
Um, and I would go every once in a while for the music and just for the music because I was agnostic at the time. Um, and then in November, a attended an evening mass there and went to their Aquinas, Aquinas night talks afterward. It was the first time that I encountered the notion of speculative theology, the idea that the church allows for creative speculation and debate at, uh, beyond the bounds of what's established as uh, God revealed doctrine and especially it's uh, kind of uncovered over time. Um, and in January of 2021, I was feeling really lonely during the COVID lockdown period, especially being in a new city, not knowing a lot of people, but knowing that you know, there was good music here. As a musician, I really missed being in a choir. And it just so happened that one evening when I decided kind of spontaneously to go to mass um, to for the purpose of seeing people really, uh, there was somebody playing the organ. He would eventually become my confirmation sponsor. And so I climbed up to the organ loft and said, hey, I'm a tenor, can I join the choir? He said, yeah, we're always looking for tenors, so feel free to uh, come by. He gave me the email number of the choral director, got in touch with him, and he let me into the choir, never asked me if I was Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we were singing in an evening mass once where the priest elevated the host, the steeple bells rang, and that was the moment when it occurred to me that's supposed to be God being presented to us in the priest's hands right there. Incredible. Now, what was your faith like growing up? So you you were baptized Catholic, and so uh, you mentioned along the way you sort of kind of uh, moved into like this spirit of agnosticism. Mm -hmm. um, so what what happened? What happened along the way? Yeah, so I was baptized Catholic as an infant, received First Communion, in elementary school, and then uh, my family tried out different Protestant denominations and um, went along, uh, such as you know, as a child, you'd follow your parents' uh, footsteps. Um, which I'll say too, uh, my parents have a really beautiful and strong relationship with Jesus, and I uh, I really admire that in them. And of course, by the time you get to high school as a teenager, it's that kind of natural question everything attitude, and that's where I started falling away. But I remember in college having uh, still a deep respect for the message of the gospel. I just couldn't quite wrap my mind around what it meant to have faith, um, and the quote-unquote supernatural aspect of it. But I really liked the moral message of the gospel. You know, kind of, I feel like you probably encountered that in society a lot. But one of the great things about being a musician is that so much of the great repertoire of the past several centuries has been church music. And in pretty much all the choirs that I was singing, totally secular, like academic choirs, we were singing church music, liturgical music, sacred music, nonstop. So I was essentially getting a training in Latin Catholic music. So by the time I started singing at St. Joseph's Shrine, which is known for uh, doing the traditional Latin mass, I had encountered Ave Verum Corpus, Hail True Body. Um, I had encountered Salve Regina, Hail Holy Queen. Um, I had sung the Mass in Latin plenty of times before actually really seeing it sung with Gregorian chant and polyphonic choir. Um, I had essentially prayed passages of the Psalms and the Lamentations of Jeremiah in secular choirs. Uh, and uh, 
yeah, in a, in a way that became a natural catechesis ahead of time for me. That's what's so beautiful about our, our mass is that everything, you know, whether it's the music or, or the bells or the incense, like the, the, the church and the, the Lord uses all of those uh, mediums to, to, to elevate our hearts and our minds to, to him, to, that, to the good and, what, and to the beautiful. And whenever we have an encounter with the beautiful uh, or the mysterious, we have an encounter with the Lord. Yeah, it's all so purposeful. Um, and I think that's something that was really striking to me. It was funny, after that moment when I saw the Eucharist being elevated, I don't know, in the next few days or so, I suddenly found myself in the Catholic supply house in Warren <laughs> <laughs> buying a, a Latin English missile. I was like, what in the world am I doing spending money on this? But it's so interesting. <laughs> and uh, in the missile that I got, uh, their little marginalia explaining the meanings of all the psalms that were prayed at Mass, so the, like he's like, kind of the smells and bells, like what they signified. And at that point, the Mass felt so rich in meaning. The, the idea of the Mass almost as a, a parallel of the life of Christ became really evident. And actually, understanding the new Mass became so much easier after learning the, uh, how the traditional Latin Mass is structured. And from there, that actually helped me to understand better the, or just to understand, period, the structure of the Byzantine rite as well. Um, so I'm really thankful for yeah, the, the richness and the, all the content that I ran into while I was St. Joseph's Shrine. Yeah, and while you were there, it sounds like you kind of clicked with um, the community you found in the yeah. choir, and, um, and you mentioned they didn't even ask if you were Catholic or not. So what was it like for you to kind of plug into this community, watch the Mass unfold day after day, and not necessarily, you know, um, fully, uh, I guess, engage in your belief in what was happening? What was that experience like? So since I had grown up Catholic, a lot of the prayers and gestures that we were doing as a choir were familiar. I had prayed the Our Father in Portuguese as a family, as my family's Brazilian, and then learned it in English by living in America. I had learned the Hail Mary in Latin by singing it in secular choirs. I had done the sign of the cross when I was a child. So none of the gestures were unfamiliar. And when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Everybody else, I was in a Catholic setting, so I was going to do what the Catholics were doing. And what I came to realize was that through all these embodied gestures, they, they have deep symbolic meaning, but not for their own sake. All of the uh, standard prayers, the gestures, the kneeling, the bowing, the processing, it's all about cultivating a relationship with God um, and really having that as the center of the liturgical experience. And one thing that I, I realized by being there and imitating what people around me were doing was, wow, what a peaceful way to live. What a really beautiful way to live. Um, at St. Joseph's Shrine, there are so many young, large families. So the the cries of babies at every mass, I think, really set off this instinct for fatherhood uh, and wanting to be a father in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I thought, wow, there's something really right about what's happening here and how these people are living their lives. And I I got a lot of my catechesis through a mixture of just singing in the choir itself and actually wanting to understand what we were saying in Latin or singing in Latin. Um, 
listening to a lot of Catholic podcasts. I feel like Pints with Aquinas was a <laughs> massive catechetical instrument for me. Um, reading those margin notes in the missals, really understanding the depth and meaning through it all. And actually, so that first half of 2021, even though I was singing in the Catholic choir and suddenly opened up to, oh, I think having a relationship with Christ again would, re would be a really good thing, I still wanted to like shop around as it were. So I uh, went to uh, services at an Episcopal church, at Orthodox churches, Methodist church, other Catholic churches, just to really understand what was available in these different traditions. And I, what was most striking about the Catholic church actually occurred to me when I was reading the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch in the winter of 2021. Um, so St. Ignatius actually became my confirmation saint almost a year ago, October of 2021, praise God. And everything that St. Ignatius of Antioch was writing around the year, what, 90 or so? He was a disciple of John the Apostle. Everything he was saying about the Eucharist is exactly what the church still teaches today. And in no other expression of Christianity did I find that continuity of tradition and truth. And also just the way that St. Ignatius wrote with such a depth of love and beauty and truth, I thought he can't be making this up. As I was reading, I was so convinced that what he was writing was true. And I guess it makes sense given that he was friends with John, the apostle of love and writing in that tradition and form of expression. Patrick, you have a great uh, devotion and love for the saints. We can yeah. we can just experience that in you in the joy that you have in, in speaking about them. Um, there was a moment at Mass that in your story, you say that you remembered a quote from Thomas Merton. Oh, that's right. Um, oh, what a wild story. So uh, summer of 2019, I got some research funding in grad school to travel all around the Midwest, uh, which is the best region in the country, if you ask me. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Florida, Midwest rocks. Uh, and I got to, at the very end of that month, I was at an urban planning conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And downtown, you know how cities have those historic marker signs downtown. There was a passage of Thomas Merton's Con uh, Confessions of a Guilty Bystander saying, uh, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. And if only everybody could realize this, there is no way of telling all these people that they are walking around shining like the sun. And that was his reaction to seeing people downtown really perceiving the image of God in others. Um, and actually, there's a portion of that quote that I don't have memorized, but uh, is the, the idea of realizing that we are all human, which is the, the race that God chose to become incarnate in. And to, how can you tell everyone that they're walking around shining like the sun? And so I actually, in the Louisville airport, set that text to music um, using a lot of tools that I had learned through composing with Gregorian chant and actually uh, structurally inspired by the Franz Bibel setting of Ave Maria, which later I discovered is the Angelus prayer, which I only know in Latin and not in English yet. I know what it means, but I don't know, you know <laughs> the standard translation. Um, the same is true for the Nicene Creed. I know it better in Latin than in English. I, I still understand it though. Um, yeah, so that was really powerful. And I was uh, later that 
year. So that was 2019. So probably early on in the fall semester, I checked out Confessions of a Guilty Bystander, Bystander from the library, was reading it outdoors and re- uh, read this passage of um, bells being, I, I'm not even remembering it properly now, but something about being like bells are an expression of God's goodness or a reminder of God's goodness. And I misremembered it actually as being God, uh, bells are a reminder of God's mercy. So at that mass in January of 2021, when the priest elevated the host and the bells rang, that memory came back of bells being a reminder of God's goodness and mercy. And mm-hmm. that's the expression of the sacrifice on the cross. What happened in your heart then? Like, was it you, so you'd grown up, you know, Catholic. So, so you heard at least about, you know, what, what Catholics believe about the Holy Eucharist. Was that, was it instantly just in your mind and in your heart, just like, yes, this is, this is Jesus. Or, or was there, was that, was that the beginning of something more? It was definitely the beginning. It was um, this sudden, unexpected openness to the truth of the Eucharist um, as a, a gateway to understanding God's love and mercy at a, a broader level and not just understanding it, but really experiencing and feeling, um, yeah, God's outpouring of love and healing power uh, and just how he's really seeking a personal relationship with us. So. You know, I hadn't been to confession for several years at that point, and so I, I knew that I couldn't receive the Eucharist at a Catholic church. Um, and I remember once being at an Episcopal church and receiving communion there, and I thought, oh, there's something here that's it's not quite, doesn't have the fullness of what I uh, consensus happening in the Catholic church with really proclaiming the real presence of Christ. I mean, it's pretty explicit in the Gospels when he says, like, uh, I know it better in Latin again in English than, uh, was it, quisquam manducat miam carnem et bibit meum sanguinem in, uh, in me manet et ego ineo. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, uh, was it like, I, I shall be in him and he in me, mm-hmm. or maybe it was vice versa. Um, and that's one of the parts of the gospel that neither Christ nor the gospel writers clarify as like, oh, he was speaking metaphorically. about No, he said, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's exactly what the early church believed. And why should I believe that the first few decades of Christians were wrong about that? You mentioned you um, hadn't been to confession. There was a bit of time before you could receive. But do you remember what it was like to receive communion for the first time and return to the church after such a long period. What was that that moment like for you? Yeah, it, it felt so real and true and really understand. Yeah, it was this beyond knowledge, but really this realm of uh, feeling and faith of, yeah, Christ is present here. Mm-hmm. That was so, so powerful. Yeah. Transformative, really. Because then it... Um, it, it, it creates this whole drive around ordering my life to be in constant communion with Christ and aiming for that because, again, the idea that we're, we're sensory creatures and there's this material world through which we can express and experience our connection with God, that, you know, I have to be in my like good behavior throughout the week if I want to receive communion uh, received the Eucharist at communion at Mass. Um, yeah, and again, the, the the point is 
to be in a constant relationship and friendship with God because it's, uh, yeah, the Eucharist as this weekly medicine and uh, spiritual medicine and food to sustain us and living a Christ-centered life and being unafraid to witness to the truth of the gospel and to, uh, through the examples of our lives as the body of Christ, the, the church and our us as individual members of the body of Christ, to tell the world that through repentance from sin and being willing in your heart to enter into a fully-fledged relationship with Christ, that there's nothing stopping God's free mercy from pouring out on you, um, transforming your life and your sense of purpose, uh, a sense of what is good and bad behavior, and with the whole reason for it being to love God above all else and in so doing to love our neighbors as ourselves and to see in our neighbors the image of God. Mm-hmm. Which I think it's such a great gift. There were a series of firsts for you. Oh yeah. Coming several. back to the church. So obviously just coming back, making that first step to come back. Um, also having that experience of you know, the, the priest raising uh, the host and those stirrings beginning in your heart, that experience of going back to confession, that experience of then receiving the Lord and the Holy Eucharist. How did that lead you perhaps to the next first step of going to the Lord, being with the Lord in adoration? Yeah. Oh, adoration is so special. It It took me a few months before I went to adoration because I didn't quite know what it was or what to do. I hadn't really heard about it before. There's a, a beauty in sacred silence. It's ironic, right? As a musician, sound is so important to me and the meaning expressed through sound. And adoration is this beautiful moment of silence with the Lord or even, you know, there's uh, adoration with praise and worship music happening. Um, it's this moment of intimate conversation, of remembering that the one triune God has three persons whom we can access. There's nothing stopping us from addressing Christ Mm -hmm. directly, of having that direct relationship, of addressing God the Father, God the Holy Spirit as individual persons. And there's something so tangible about being able to look at the physical presence of God on earth. What made you go? What made you go, you know, after a few months of uh, receiving the Eucharist? Was there an event that was happening or there was just an invitation there? No, so I think the the first time that I remember going to adoration was summer of 2021. I was briefly living back in upstate New York for two months in a very secular area of the state where there were about three Catholic parishes and one of them had a holy hour available. Um, And I just remember it being something that I hadn't tried out yet and wanted to go see. And um, yeah, that was the first first time. So what does your time of adoration look like? Do do you structure it in a certain way or is it just going before the Lord and and sitting in silence and seeing seeing how he moves? Oh, totally unstructured. Because I feel like whenever I try to structure my life around the way I think it should be structured, God's always like, nope, uh, there's a better <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, and, and just being open to his will. Uh, for me, it tends to be a, a time of conversation with the Lord, of uh, yeah, really prayerful conversation, just opening myself up to him um, and asking him for the 
openness and the wisdom to know what he wants for me and what he wants me to do in my life, all with the end purpose of glorifying him and all that he's done and plans to do. What is your devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist? Or maybe better yet, what does it mean to have his presence available to you? What does that do for your daily life? There's a story that I shared in in my uh, story about once receiving the Eucharist and accidentally missing my pew and having to loop around <laughs> to get back to it and feeling this immense sense of happiness of, nice, I get to literally walk with Jesus uh, physically together. It's, I think, a, a great reminder of how God created us to be in relationship with him from the sense of he created us as both a body and soul composite, not just one or the other, and that he can totally tap into that beautiful aspect of his creation to draw us into connection to him. It's something so, so extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to be in physical contact with God. Mm -hmm. One of the themes that sort of underlie many of the stories that we've been able to share so far is, like yours, people who have been away from the church for a while. Um, And we can see that always God is working and God has worked in your life just through his grace to bring you from one place to another, from from maybe doubt to a place of of belief. And um, there are sure to be those out there who are struggling with their faith, um, particularly young people. So someone who is your age or or a younger version of you, you know, struggling with just faith in the Lord, what would you say to them? Faith isn't something that's beneath reason, but a totally beautiful and different way of understanding and feeling what it means to be in relationship with God. When I was coming back into the faith, there were aspects of church teaching that I couldn't quite grasp or explain clearly or maybe that I disagreed with. And that's okay. I think it's not something where we need to arrive at a conclusion first and say, this is how X, Y, and Z works and therefore I believe it, but rather first to be open to believing, to be open to experiencing God in a new way of not needing to have all the answers ready and clearly explained up front. But I think ultimately remembering that God, because he created and loves us all so deeply, is searching for a direct personal and intimate relationship with each of us. And the first step, even if you're in really deep doubt about whether any of this is real, is to just be open to a relationship with God and letting the rest work itself out. And it's okay if you can't break down a theological argument like Thomas Aquinas with here are all the oppositions and here's why they're wrong and rather here's the, the, the truth underlying this teaching. You don't need all that structure and it's not because faith is any less than the intellect, but rather it's a totally different mode of knowing and feeling. What I like to say is faith is not having it all figured out. Yeah. Faith is about trusting a person, 
the person who is Christ. And Christ is always faithful to his promises. Thank you so much, Patrick, for sharing um, your testimony and these beautiful insights. I am very grateful for your witness. I am so inspired by what the Lord has done in your life. So thank you again for sharing with us on I Am Here and for joining us here on the podcast. We're very grateful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to share. All glory to God. And thank you for listening to the I Am Here podcast. You can read and listen to more stories of people encountering Jesus in the Eucharist at IamHere.org. And we also invite you to share your story with us. I Am Here is a campaign by the Archdiocese of Detroit and Hello App in support of the National Eucharistic Revival.